As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hi, this is Brian Polson, host of Open Record. Throughout September, we are revisiting some of our favorite podcast episodes from the past three years. This week, that time I picked up a prostitute. Well, sort of. My investigation of human trafficking in Milwaukee led to one of the grittiest and most candid interviews of my professional career. It also exposed a huge problem on the city's south side. Plus, the clothing choice from my cub reporting days that left our executive producer doubled over in laughter. As we continue to work on new material for the future, please enjoy this encore presentation of Open Record, The Trench Coat. What happened to all of this water? There's a family ghost. I mean, I don't know what it is. You don't know what it is. They had a pet, maybe. Who knows what that animal was doing at night? I have no idea. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. We're investigative reporters breaking down the big stories, what it took to get them, taking you behind the scenes. It's the stuff we couldn't tell you on TV. On today's episode, some problems can't be solved. The consumer issue we couldn't fix and advice for anyone who ends up in a similar situation. And Ladies of the Daylight, an inside look at the hidden camera investigation in which Brian actually chatted with a prostitute. Hello, I'm Brian Polson, and I'm here with Jenna Sachs. Hi. And Amanda St. Hilaire. Hello. Prostitution, human trafficking, the world's oldest profession. Whatever you call it, a Milwaukee city alderman says it is out of control in his south side district. In fact, it's so bad, it's happening in broad daylight. And Brian, you now have a bit of firsthand experience with this. Like many others, I want nothing to do with the illegal sex trade. Still, I found out firsthand that people are getting solicited in the middle of the day. In fact, it happened to me during a trip down Greenfield Avenue. So how does this work? Because I've never done this before. How does it work? Um, yeah. You get in, you tell me what you want, you give me the money, we do it, and, and we go our own ways. Okay. The woman you just heard in that audio clip is a prostitute who we saw working day after day on Greenfield Avenue in the middle of the day within a few blocks of Christ Evangelical Lutheran Church. So how did you learn this was happening in the first place? Well, the pastor of that church, 23rd in Greenfield, he'd been complaining to Milwaukee Alderman Bob Donovan that drugs and human trafficking were out of control in the neighborhood and they were disrupting not only his church, but the whole neighborhood. Even some children were being approached and solicited. So you heard this was happening and decided, let's see how bad it really is? Well, yeah, we get tips all the time about things, and that's the first thing you want to know is, okay, is it as bad as it's being described? I mean, we know prostitution is an issue all over the place, but we were getting the impression that it was particularly concentrated in this area, and this is a high-traffic area. So we said, let's just go take a look. And actually, we sent producer Pete to sit down there in a van watching the activity. And the first day he was there, he he responded back and he said, Brian, we're going to have an easy time with this. It's all over the place. Um, he was seeing what appeared to be prostitutes working street corners and then these men who were sort of watching over them and seemed to be directing what was happening, talking, communicating 
through cell phones, um, just sort of loitering at some of these street corners. So how did you balance your approach to this story? Because when you're talking about prostitutes, everybody has the jokes and the smirks, but there's also a human trafficking element to that. So how did you figure out how to approach this from a, a news standpoint and a journalism standpoint while still factoring all that in? Well, as I said, it's, you know, it's called the world's oldest profession for a reason. It's not as though the fact that prostitution is going on is new and maybe even in and of itself newsworthy. The degree, the brazenness with which this was going on is what seemed to be newsworthy because Greenfield Avenue, especially through that segment on the south side of Milwaukee, is a busy stretch of road. There are businesses, there, you know, there are convenience stores, there are homes, it's a neighborhood, people live there, there's churches, there's a lot of traffic. And so a lot of vehicles, which probably makes it a profitable place to engage in the sex trade because you've got a lot of potential customers passing by. Most people who are passing by aren't customers. And it was happening in the middle of the day when, you know, most families are out and about. This wasn't Saturday night at 2 o'clock in the morning. This was happening on Monday morning at 10 a.m. And uh, so the approach we wanted to take, first of all, was let's see just how pervasive it is. Is it something you can just sort of see yourself and we're a visual medium in television, can you just see what's going on? And then we had to prove that what we were seeing is what we thought. And that was going to be the trickier part because it's easy to look at what's happening. Someone's hanging out on a street corner, maybe swaying their hips a little, waving at passing cars. Maybe they're leaning over and talking to someone in the driver's seat, but we don't know what they're saying. They might be asking for a ride. They might be asking for a cigarette. Who knows? So we needed to know is what we're seeing what's really going on. So how did you go about doing that? And that was a conversation we had um, that it took some some uh, planning. And it started with uh, our chief photographer, Andy Conkle, helping us equip a station vehicle with multiple cameras because whatever interaction we were going to have, we needed to have it recorded. And the idea to do this actually came from my interview with the pastor of the church because in talking to him, he said he'd been solicited probably 10 times in the time he's been pastor there. And I said, well, how does that go? I mean, you're being solicited. Are they approaching you? Do you approach them? What happens? And he said, you can drive down Greenfield Avenue. He said, all you have to do is make eye contact. And for many people, you make polite eye contact with someone you see on the side of the street. You might nod at them. You might, if you catch their eye, you might just, you know, a little wave yeah, or a hello. Acknowledge their existence as a human being. In many cases, that's taken as a signal. You're interested. And if you happen to be pulling over, and of course he works there at the church, he pulls his car over, he gives a friendly smile or gesture, they think that's a signal. So they would approach him. So I thought, is it really that easy? Is it really that, does it, does it happen that quickly? So we equipped this vehicle with multiple cameras and, and we had producer Pete following me so that he could videotape everything that was happening as well. And uh, the day we went out to do this, we were out there for about an hour and we didn't see a lot of activity. And I think it was probably late morning, we started seeing people come out and start to hang out on the different corners. And uh, the one that we ended up capturing, based on her attire and the way she was sort of hanging on a pole, street pole or light pole, I think, by the street, it became pretty clear what was happening there. She was posing in ways um, and sort of gesturing at passing traffic. So I told producer Pete where I was going. He parked and was getting video and I went around the block. And as I came down Greenfield Avenue with cameras rolling, as I was passing, she's out the passenger side window of the vehicle, and all it was was eye contact. And you can see from the cameras, she nodded at me, 
and I pulled around the corner and stopped the car. There were no words exchanged. There was nothing else. It was eye contact and a head nod. I pulled over and I rolled down the window. She approaches the car and leans in from the passenger side and says, you know, hey, baby, or something to that degree. I don't remember the exact words um, and started a conversation. And she wanted to get in the vehicle. And we'd had this discussion in advance. What if they want to get in? Right. How do you keep from crossing I don't a want line? someone who's engaged in the illegal sex trade getting in a station vehicle. So the doors were locked. And I said, well, hang on a minute. I'm new at this. I don't know how this works. And um, which, of course, is true because I don't know <laughs> how that works. Um, and and she, to, uh, to my surprise, just came right out and delivered it all. All the mm-hmm. goods right there in the first line. Here's well, what we do. Well, you okay, when mu- you say delivered all the goods... <laughs> In her speech, verbally, she's, <laughs> what she said was, I, "I'm sure if I were running a, a you know some sort of a police sting, she would have said enough for me to probably take some sort of action." Except there was no actual exchange of money. But what she said is, "You tell me what you want. You give me the money. I get in. We do our thing, and we go our separate ways." And that was sort of all the elements right there. At that point, I knew I can't go on with this. I'm not going to actually engage in this or make her think we're going forward. So that's when I said, "I need to identify myself." And I told her I was an investigative reporter with Fox 6 News working on a story about prostitution, and I expected that immediately she would go away. But I also told her I'm not interested in outing you individually or using your name or even showing your face. I want to know why you do this. And and she it, kept talking to you, didn't and she? And she kept talking. And at that point, I thought, let's talk as long as we can. And she started to tell me about the lifestyle why she does it, she admitted she was a heroin addict, that this was her way to pay for her heroin addiction. Um, I asked her, I said, are you being forced to do this? And she said, it's kind of by choice and kind of by force, and then went on to explain that she needs the drugs. And in many of these cases, the only source that uh, a sex worker has for getting the drugs they need to feed their addiction is a pimp, the person who's controlling them. I like that your story addressed those more serious underlying things with prostitution because it it would be easy to just kind of point and laugh and said, oh, Brian talked to a prostitute and kind of hype it up along that. But your story got at some really gritty realities and details that I think a lot of people don't think about. There's clearly a uh, sensational aspect to this that you could just stop at and it would be an entertaining news story, but it wouldn't have any meaning. The meaning here was twofold. First of all, you have obviously victims of human trafficking who are being sold like products um, and who are trapped in this situation because of their life situation, because they don't have any other avenues for making a living and they're controlled by a person who's using them to make their own money. But then there was the second layer, and and I think we've gotten to a point now where, in a good way, prostitutes are viewed as victims of human trafficking rather than just criminals. And for a long time, prostitutes were just treated as vagrants and criminals. They're now seen properly as victims. But there's another set of victims, and that's another place where the story went. The complaint didn't come from a prostitute who felt like a victim. It came from a member of the community who said, we are overrun with this. It's affecting our members of our congregation. It's affecting the children in the neighborhood. It's affecting our quality of life. So while you have victims of human trafficking, their activity was also victimizing the people in the neighborhood and making their lives 
difficult. You also spoke with Alderman Bob Donovan for sure. this story. Yeah. Um, what did he do before and after this story that was interesting? Well, so uh, Alderman Donovan and, and he, for a very long time, has never been afraid to be a squeaky wheel. He, he knows that sometimes you've got to be the loud voice to get attention, and maybe that means getting attention from the police department for your district. He felt that the Milwaukee Police Department, and at the time, Chief Ed Flynn, were ignoring his district and not taking care of what might be perceived as lesser concerns compared to so much of the violent crime we have in our community. Um, and, and there were stings being done from time to time, prostitutes and their johns, the customers being arrested. They were all being issued municipal tickets. And Alderman Donovan's take was those are worthless to someone who's just going to rip it up and get right back out there. And it wasn't getting at the actual root of the issue. Correct. So he, he, he wanted more of a police presence and more of a focus on this. And his way of doing that is to call a news conference. So he called a news conference and held it right out at 23rd and Greenfield, right under a police camera that gives police the ability to surveil that neighborhood 24 hours a day. And he asked, why aren't they doing something? They have a camera right here, and this is where it's happening. So he holds the news conference, and there's television stations from all over the, the area there and newspaper reporters and so on. And uh, and they made a, a nice show of dumping out a box full of condoms and needles and other things that are sort of the peripheral things that are strewn about the neighborhood that are evidence of the problem. And it was, you know, it was a it was a, a good demonstration in a show. What I noticed, because remember, we had producer Pete out there for probably a week before this news conference happened. We had seen what was going on day after day after day. We rarely saw any police officers walking the beat. If we saw cars, they were passing down Greenfield Avenue. Very little police activity, if any. Within a couple of hours, maybe an hour before the news conference, there were cops walking the beat in pairs. There were squad cars all over the place. They were clearly making sure when this news conference happens, there will not be any hookers in sight. And they were doing their best to essentially clean up the area. And so we documented that. Interestingly enough, when the news conference was over, and everybody left within 30 minutes. The same prostitute who approached me was back out, different outfit, different wig, but we I had a good inkling it was her based on her just mannerisms. And sure enough, there she was again, waving at traffic, moving her hips, soliciting whatever it was she was doing. Was this the point where you were on the phone with your wife? <laughs> yes. Because this, this is, is one of my so, favorite stories. So I was talking at the moment to, and now that I think about it, this is before we were married. I think we were engaged. Um, and uh, and she still married me after this. Uh, but I was on the phone with uh, my now wife, and um, we were having a conversation. I don't know what it was. I, I was telling her or asking her about something that evening, and I saw the the this prostitute down the street, and I said, Honey, I've got to go. I think that's my prostitute. <laughs> and she said, okay. And I hung up the phone and I didn't really get to explain until later what was going on. And she's told that story many times now that, you know, you're comfortable with your man when he says, I've got to go see my it's prostitute. It's a lot of trust. And uh, yeah. Well, you, you touched on the issue of human trafficking and we know it's a huge issue nationwide, but we seem to have a lot of it here in Milwaukee. Is it considered a hotbed for that kind of activity? Well, many of the people who work uh, in law enforcement and, and the justice system dealing with this say that Milwaukee is kind of a hotbed because of the proximity to Chicago. And a lot of the sex workers aren't actually working in Milwaukee. They are recruited or maybe even kidnapped or coerced 
off the streets of Milwaukee and taken to Chicago where they are showcased or, or, or uh, you know, put out as product, um, oftentimes advertised on websites um, that are known for this sort of activity. Um, but this is a place in one case, it, it, it's a, it's a, or on the one hand, it's a place where um, pimps or those involved in, in human trafficking can recruit or find people to be sex workers. And the U.S. attorney, assistant U.S. attorney, um, who uh, we quoted in the story, has said it's also maybe perceived as a place where you can get away with it, maybe compared to some other jurisdictions. I think that's changing. There's been a heavy focus in recent years on holding uh, human traffickers accountable in federal court and state court um, for for what in the past might have been a lower-level offense. Now they're much more serious crimes, and they're getting serious time in prison. Um, but as long as it's profitable... And it seems that it's been profitable enough that this has continued. It's going to go on. And while this all started out as a quality of life issue for one neighborhood, it's a very serious issue in general, human trafficking. If you need resources, you need help, you need information about human trafficking, we have information on our website, fox6now.com. And if you have any questions about this or you just have ideas for another potential story, send us an email, theinvestigators at fox6now.com. So 280,000 gallons of water, that's how much water a Campbellsport family was told their household had used in just three months. And Jenna, that sounds like an impossible amount of water to use. It sounds like it for a house, absolutely. That's the equivalent of taking 14,000 showers. So we have some options here. Either the people in this house were super clean or something wasn't quite right. Yeah, the latter. The family was very surprised when they got this bill, so they turned to contact six uh, when it arrived. I don't have $6,000 to pay for one bill that would have been five years worth of water bills. The woman you just heard from is Teresa Whitney, and she was told that between December and March, her two-person household had used 284,000 gallons of water. 284,000 gallons. I mean, that sounds like a lot of water. Was it different from her bill before? It was a huge spike, actually. The quarter before, they'd use 8,500 gallons. Um, so 8,500 to 284,000. Their bill had gone from 200 something dollars to about $6,000, as she said. So obviously, it's hard after the fact to figure out who showered when and how much water did you use. What steps did you take? when you got this tip to see what was going on. We reached out to the Public Service Commission, which will review these cases. Uh, the utility here had reviewed it themselves and found that the meter was working properly and that it was a properly calculated bill. And we took it to the PSC so they would take a second look, and they came to the same conclusion and said this was calculated property, properly um, a utility meter. I don't know if you know this. It measures the amount of water that goes into a house. It doesn't measure the amount of water that goes out. Hmm. So we have proof that this water went into the house. We don't have proof that it went yeah, anywhere. Where did it go? They, I mean, the family the who lived there says that they didn't use it, but we have no proof that they didn't use it because everything points to the water meter working correctly. The, and, and having worked in newsrooms for quite a long time, I know that these complaints will come in from time to time about a high water bill. Typically, what you end up finding out is there was some kind of a leak. If they didn't actually use the water themselves, maybe there was a running toilet or there was a leak in a pipe underground or something like that. But that wasn't the case here. Is that right? No, this this is on a whole other level. You know, a leaky toilet or uh, a furnace or a spigot that's running in the backyard, that's usually not going to amount to this amount of water. This is 
you know, like flushing your toilet 14,000 times, we said. It's like all of the water tanks that rhyme in Aquarium at Discovery World. Um, it could fill all the fermenting t- tanks at uh, Lakefront Brewery here in Milwaukee. So that's a lot of water. But if you had your kitchen faucet running on full blast for three months, that would use that amount of water. So it's interesting to think that that amount of water could accumulate over so much time. But this one ended with a mystery. And I think we wanted to do this story to show that sometimes there are things we can't fix. And we always highlight the stories that we do have success on. But this one, I think it was important to show, you know, this one, there's just no proof available and there's nothing that can be done. They have to pay this bill. So is this a one-time thing? Did future bills look like this? How did this family deal? Well, this is where it gets really interesting because the village noticed that there was a lot of water being used. They notified the family and within 24 hours, the water usage stopped. So if you have a skeptical mind, maybe you think, you know, this couple did something. They found the problem. They turned, you know, a faucet. They figured it out. They insist that they didn't do anything. Someone from the village came out, checked the meter. They did a 24-hour water test to see how much water was being used, and they found everything went back to normal. Um, So they're just kind of stuck. You said that that the city knows that this amount of water and weighs the 284,000 gallons went into the house because that it went through mm-hmm. the meter and that's how they measure this. So they tested, they're sure the meter worked properly. They're absolutely sure. They even took the meter off site and looked at it at a separate facility on low, moderate, and high levels, and it passed all of the tests. Uh, and interestingly, this was in the winter time, so it's not like they were filling up the kiddie pool in the backyard every day or doing anything outdoors, which is a reason a lot of water bills go up in the summer. Um, they looked into whether someone could have stolen their water, you know, hooked up a hose to their outdoor spigot, but they said it was turned off for the winter. So it's just a complete mystery. That's got to be tough to break it to a family that is so insistent. We didn't do anything different here that there's there's really nothing anyone can do. Right. And they took it through every venue they could. You know, they took it to their village. They they um, filed a complaint there. They went to the PSC. They went to us. And they had to just keep getting the same answer because there's just no evidence that they didn't leak. And the rule is if you leak, then you pay for it. That's just how our utilities bill. You're the homeowner. You're responsible for whatever is happening once it gets beyond that meter, I guess. But as you said, they would have had to have their faucet open, gushing nonstop for three months. They get the call. Suddenly everything stops. It suggests they did something or it would seem to. But is there any way they just left their faucet open for three months and went, oh, I guess we better shut that off now? As homeowners, we have a vested interest in figuring this out because this is kind of a terrifying story. I mean, I I feel Mm -hmm. nervous when the water is on for a couple of minutes and I get on the kids like, hey, shut that off. You know, three months, I doubt anyone left their faucet running full blast that long. And I pressed them on that when I interviewed them and they didn't have anything in their facial expressions or the way they were speaking to me that made me think that they were lying. And they took me on a tour of their house. It's a small house. There wasn't anything unusual about it. They had like a a big jacuzzi bathtub that had dust in it because they don't use it. Um, So they said that wasn't the issue. And, you know, there wasn't anything there that looked like would be using a lot of water. Um, So who knows what happened here, but they fought it so hard. And I don't know if that's an indication of wrongdoing or rightdoing, but they're just insistent that they didn't do anything. And I felt badly that we couldn't fix it for them. Um, But everybody I I talked to was very insistent that this is just the way 
the utilities work and there's no evidence that they didn't use that water. I think a lot of reporters would have looked at this and said, ah, the testing came back fine, the story's dead, we're not going to do it. But you doing this is kind of a public service to everybody else because it gets us all thinking, well, what are we going to do if we have a weird water bill? How do we dispute that? It's still served a a journalistic purpose in my view. Well, we also used it as an opportunity to talk about leaks in general. If you have a running toilet in your house, it's not going to get you to $284,000, but it is going to cost you money. Gallons. We hope what did they say? $284,000 would <laughs> oh, even be worse. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, 284,000 gallons. Um, but if you have a toilet, let's say, that was built before 1980, let's talk about toilets. Um, <laughs> you, They use five... That's going in the open. <laughs> <laughs> you use... You use five gallons per flush if your toilet was installed before 1980. Now they use about 1.24 gallons. So if huh. you could save a lot of money if you have a more efficient toilet, and it works just as well. Uh, so now you know. So now you know more about toilets than you ever thought you cared to. And that accounts for a lot segment, of higher let's bills. Let's talk toilets. All right. <laughs> but if you have a running toilet, that'll account for a higher bill every month. So it is important to pay attention to the, the quarterly bills, I should say, that you're getting. And if the amount is going up, and you hear a running toilet or there's a dripping faucet in your house, that can save you money if you get those things fixed. We use this as an opportunity to look at those issues. Um, But the PSC tells me this is rare. It happens, but to see something like this, a spike. Something this significant. Yeah, extremely rare. one-time spike and it goes away. But Mm -hmm. I'm still sort of stuck on the idea that there's a mystery here because Mm. the PSC doesn't know, the city doesn't know, the homeowners don't seem to know. What happened to all of this water? There's a family ghost. I mean, I don't know what it is. You don't know what it is. They had a pet, maybe. Who knows what that animal was doing at night? I have no idea. I, and I you feel badly that we... pet under the bus. <laughs> I, you know, I just, I, I have no idea. I think we did some some uh, uh, rough estimates of how many showers you would have to take. It was 14,000 showers. So if you'd be showering, you know, all day, every day, maybe... But it's, I feel badly that this story ended on a mystery, but there's just nothing we could do. <laughs> well, you, you said the, the swimming, like that's the first thing I go to was, well, did they have a backyard swimming pool? You mentioned the jacuzzi tub. Is there some way that could have been constantly running for three months? But you said it was dusty. It was dusty. Um, and they insist it wasn't. trying to solve this mystery right well, I'm here stuck on right it because now. It's an anomaly. This isn't, I mean, you, you, you know, there is the sort of takeaway of what do you do if your bill's too high? Mm-hmm. But $6,000, 284,000 gallons, it just, there's, there's this unsolved mystery. I just want to know. I know, and I can't. I can't <laughs> solve it for you. I'm sorry. I tried, um, but it, you know, it's it raises some important lessons about watching your own water bill and smaller issues you might encounter. But unfortunately, they have to pay this bill off. And I know they came up with some sort of financial arrangement. And if they ever sell the house, then that would be taken care. Of, you know, it would be taken care of at that point. So you know, I wish we could have solved it. I'm sorry, Brian. You seem very disappointed. I, I seem, the good I'm news very is concerned. you solve most. Things we do, and you know, we we. I just think it's good every now and then to talk about you know a case that got us stuck because it's interesting, um, and you know, it's hard to believe that someone could find themselves in this position and nothing can be done. I feel like we will still take tips on this if someone knows what happened to would, all of this water. Come forward and tell Contact Six because ten I want to know. Years from now, Brian's going to figure this out. This will haunt us. No, it was, a, it, was a, it was a very interesting Family story. Ghosts. It was a very interesting story because, like you said, this is one of those where what do you do when it happens to you? And while $6,000 is not going to happen to most people, when you get that surprise bill that's way higher mm-hmm. than you're expecting, 
it, you can feel helpless. Right. And you can check that your meter is working properly and that the bill was properly calculated. You can find information on how your utility um, operates online, what their rates are. Um, so you can do that research yourself. Um, and then you can appeal to the PSC and, and see what they say. And then you can call Jenna. Right. But I do actually resolve cases. So if you have a complaint... Most of the time. Most of the time. Almost all of the time. You can fill out a form on our website, fox6now.com, and we'd be happy to try to help. That's the dinner bell. It means it's time for our dinner party question. Every episode, we enter... hmm, Every episode, we answer a question we most often get asked at parties or events when we're out and about. We have no idea what the question is. We have several envelopes in front of us, and we're going to pick one at random, and I think it is Jenna's turn. So here we go. Jenna has picked one of the three remaining envelopes. All right. Let's see what it is. We're going to need new questions, people. Send us some question (laughs) ideas. What's your favorite story? Oh, that's hard. That is hard. That's a, a career. Can we like worth. take a beat to think about this? <laughs> I All right, play the Jeopardy sounder right now. Hmm. I could. I'll put down the envelope. I could tell you one of my first big interviews that was important to me um, when I was. Uh, a reporter in La Crosse, Wisconsin. It was my first job out of college. And I was sent to interview Michelle Obama, um, who was campaigning for her husband. And I was young and green. And when I interviewed her, it was a one-on-one interview. Um, I remember that she took me seriously and she treated me professionally. And I remember at that moment feeling good about myself and the job I was doing. Um, so that was an exciting moment for me because it was one of those first high-profile interviews I'd done, and the person treated me with respect. So I always look back on that with a good feeling. I don't know if it's my favorite story, but it was a it was a good moment because someone who was you know well known nationally um, had treated me with respect and made me feel like I was doing my job well. And that's and, a stage in life where you already have a lot of self doubts, no matter what your profession is. But especially mm-hmm. now, the spotlight's on you. Here's this important figure. And when someone does take you seriously, that, that can be a pivotal moment. Right. And it was, it was a special moment for me. I was probably 22. Um, so I look back on that fondly. I don't know if it would be my favorite story. I've done a lot of stories. I don't, I don't know if I put together the story that well, because like I said, I was a green reporter, but I remember that was a, that was a highlight for me early on in my career. Amanda. I, I think when we're talking about favorite stories, so kind of to echo what you said, Jenna, this isn't my favorite story in terms of how it turned out because I've since learned a lot more. uh, I've learned a lot more since then, and I've done stories that were produced differently and everything like that. But one of my first investigative stories in my last market was in a, a small town called Steelton. There were issues with violating the open records law, which you know I'm very passionate about. So far, all of this sounds very yes. Pennsylvania. And um, there were there were people who weren't doing their jobs. It was costing the borough money, and we reported on it pretty persistently. It eventually turned out that the police chief tied into that was signing off on permits when he did not have the legal authorization 
to do so. So there were these projects that had these permits that had not been properly vetted. And it ended up with half the town turning out to these public meetings and big changes that happened. And that was the first time where I saw, okay, what we do has a lot of power and can have lasting impact and can lead to positive change. So even though sometimes when we do investigative stories, sometimes when people are a little sensitive about what we're reporting on, they'll say, oh, why can't you do positive news? Well, it showed me that investigations are and can be positive news because they can lead to positive outcomes and more community involvement and get people to really rally around an issue. And I feel like that's the kind of story I should tell, but it's not going to be. <laughs> Let's um, hear it, Brian. So actually, my favorite story, or at least the story that I think still kind of carries the most meaning for me, is, and it goes back to being a younger journalist, but it was breaking news. And it was, so this was before I ever knew I was even going to do anything in terms of investigations. I was uh, the crime beat reporter at KCCI-TV in Des Moines, and I was um, in my mid-20s, and I, I, gosh, I, I, someone's going to go find video or pictures of this and put this up somewhere, so I hesitate to bring it up. But I used to, when I first got into news, I, I'm a crime reporter, my first full-time TV job, I wore a trench coat. Of course and you it did. Was, it was it was stellar. <laughs> and <laughs> executive producer Leanne is doubled over with her head in her hands. It's, I want to um, know if she's laughing because she's hearing this for the first time or if she's laughing because she's already found no, because she, footage. No, she's laughing probably because she can imagine me, of all people, <laughs> in a trench nodding. coat doing the news. Um, but... So I, I had the trench coat, and I took myself very seriously. Um, and I, because I was the crime <laughs> reporter, I was always doing the lead. <laughs> Stop! You're making me laugh. <laughs> I was doing the lead breaking news story, if there was one. And um, and oftentimes they weren't that big of a deal, but you know that's what was going on in Des Moines. Maybe there was a bank robbery that day. Maybe there was another meth lab. There were a lot of meth labs in the in the mid to late '90s um, in Iowa. So oftentimes the stories just didn't feel that exciting. But one day. There was a, uh, a a pretty dramatic case that un- unfolded where police were chasing a man who'd been involved in a domestic violence situation, and um, they they chased him, and he had his two kids in the car with him, two young children, ages three and five, and they chased him around, and they finally um, he the, the 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 chase ended in a neighborhood around the block from his uh, estranged wife's home, and he got out of the car with a gun in his hand and both of his children, and he was holding the gun to his own head. And police didn't intercede at that point because they were worried about the safety of the kids. He had the weapon. He walked all the way to the house. He went inside the home, and he shut himself inside, and it started a five-day standoff. It went on 24 hours a day with SWAT teams interchanging their their, uh, shift changes throughout the day, and we covered it. We were stationed there day after day after day. And, of course, being the crime beat reporter, I would get the the morning shift. I was on the day shift, and we just sat there for many days updating what was the background. We got court records that looked at the domestic violence history that led up to this. But you had this man holed up inside a home with two young children, police shining spotlights on the house and communicating and trying to make sure the kids had food, um, that they were still okay. And on the fifth day, uh, we were the only station that were, was still in the neighborhood at that moment because the others had sort of sent their live trucks back in the middle of a shift change. This was in Indianola, Iowa, which is south of Des Moines. 
and I was sitting there. There was a, a pizza place that had delivered pizza to some of the people, the police officers and us working at the scene, and we're eating pizza in the car, and I see a squad car pull through, and I see in the passenger seat a woman who I believe to be from the photos I've seen, the mother, the, the estranged wife. And I thought, what's going on? And all of a sudden, I was alerted, something's happening here. After five days of waiting, this was the top story uh, in, in the region. And uh, on the fifth day, she's brought in. They have her stand outside the house. He had apparently been demanding to speak to her. So they brought her essentially as bait. And it worked. The man came out of the house. And um, Wayne Sinclair, the name just came to me. I've been trying to think of this. Wayne Sinclair came out of the house. And he had his two boys. And I had gotten just enough heads up. Back at that time, it was a lot harder to get live on the air. I was on a brick phone, a brick cell phone. I called it in. Um, We got ourselves up and running our satellite truck. We had to use a sat truck from where we were, got the signal back, and we were live as he came out of the house. And there's a SWAT team approaching with shields in front and, you know, the six or seven or eight people in in their uniforms all sort of slowly approaching from the – if you imagine on your TV screen, they're coming from the left side of the screen. Wayne and his two boys are coming from the right side of the screen. And he's got his hand in his pocket. And one of the, the littlest boy, the three-year-old, got a little too far out in front of him. And as he reached out for the boy, the SWAT team came across and tackled him. And another group came from the other direction and whisked the boys away. As they tackled him to the ground, he had pulled out a gun and was pointing it like he was about to shoot. And the team we had working in the control room that day were absolutely heroes. Within probably... 45 seconds to a minute, they had taken, they had re-racked the video and put a spot shadow on the gun, frozen it. And you could see where as this man's being tackled with his children being whisked away, he's pulling a gun out. And it was this drama that was just gripping. And uh, it was for me as a young reporter, I'd only been in the news business maybe a year, year and a half. Um, It was the most dramatic thing I could think I was in the middle of. And to this day, it still is all these years later. And a tricky situation to cover because when you're covering a standoff, you don't want to give away SWAT positions. If they're inside watching on their TV, you don't know when you go live what's going to happen if someone is going to take his own life or pull out a gun like you just described. We so had, to do had, our, to be. Yeah, we had to do our live shots uh, using the uh, front porch lights of cer- certain neighbors because they wouldn't allow us to put up our news lights right. because it would give away their positions to the guy who was inside. We had a good working relationship with law enforcement, um, the Iowa State Patrol Tactical Unit and others that were working this um, it, because, you know, we were there day after day after day side by side. Um, and, and, of course, everyone's goal in the end was to get these boys out safely. Uh, but it was – the way that ended and the drama in which it, it happened, I've never been a part of anything like it. And so to this day, it still resonates with me as probably – it's hard to say my favorite story, though I guess it is because it ended – well, there was no one shot, no one hurt. Wayne Sinclair went to prison. The boys, I don't know where they are today, but what has it been? Almost 20, well, it's been 20 years, I guess. They're in their, you know, theoretically their young 20s now. So, you know, hopefully they're doing okay and, and, uh, and it's all a happy ending or as happy as it could be. Thanks for listening to Open Record. We'd like to quickly thank the people behind the scenes helping us to make this happen. Producer Pete, who got a lot of mentions today, Dave Machuda, and Leanne Watson. And if you want more Open Record, head to our website, fox6now.com. Fox 6 Now.